0: Well, good morning. Good morning. My name is Gerald, and I'm a member of the church here. Occasionally, I come out of the woodwork to take a service. Uh, so this is one of those uh, occasions. We've been going through a series as a church about bridge over troubled waters, and we've been thinking about the things in our lives that are like troubled waters uh, and the bridges that we have over those. Today uh, we're going to talk about the troubled waters of doubt. Uh, when I was given that title, I sort of scratched my head and I thought, "I'm not sure about that." Uh, but there we are. We're going to think a little bit about about doubt uh, and some of the answers to it. I think none of us lives lives of constant certainty. Uh, we all have those doubts about all sorts of things, some that matter, some that don't matter. I want to think this morning particularly about those that perhaps do matter to us as Christians, the things that matter to us if we're going to live uh, as the people of Christ. The reading we were given, that we've just had so brilliantly read to us, thank you very much, those who took part, uh, is about, about Thomas. Now, of course, he's misquoted. He's misnamed. He's not doubting Thomas. He's disbelieving Thomas. When he was told, Jesus has risen, he said, I ain't going to believe that. Wasn't, oh, I'm not sure about that. I doubt that somehow. I don't believe it. I'm not going to believe it. So, perhaps it's not the ideal uh, topic uh, to base a talk about doubt. Uh, but nevertheless, um, I want to a little bit about Thomas, and then they want to look at two other aspects of doubt uh, from different parts of of scripture. So, um, Thomas, he couldn't believe. All the evidence was there. People were telling people he believed, people he trusted, but somehow there was something in Thomas that could not believe. And there were many people Like that, they hear the the, the message of Christ. They hear about Him giving His life for them, and somehow it it just doesn't click. They haven't; they just can't really uh, say, "Yeah, I'm with that." And perhaps you're one of those people. You you come here, you come to services, you uh, you, you're with uh, somebody else, and you you hear it all. And somehow you think, it'd be nice, but I just can't, I can't quite hold that. I can't get hold of that. One of the um, people whom is one of my heroes of, of, of the Christian faith is a man called John Wesley. And I'm sure you've heard uh, of John Wesley. John Wesley uh, was someone who had that same problem. He, well, he'd actually you as a vicar he preached and preached, and yet he said, you know, I really, I really haven't got any real face. I just, I don't, I, I, I can't really, I know it all, and I can preach it all, but I'm not sure that I quite believe it, and I'm sorry, Andrea, I've jumped in my notes, and uh uh we should have had that. yeah. So, let's, uh, let me just go back very slightly. Um... What does Jesus' answer to Thomas actually tell us about when we just can't believe? Actually, it doesn't help much, because what Jesus said was, blessed are those who believe who haven't seen. Okay, Thomas, you've seen, but you don't believe. Now you believe because you've seen. But what about the people who haven't seen, who haven't put their fingers in my fingers and in my side? What about those people? What Jesus says is, well, they're more blessed if they believe. Which doesn't help a lot, does it, when you struggle with belief? Paul says, by grace you've been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God. Sorry, this? That's better. And that's not saying that we can't do anything about it, either you know, either God gives us faith or not. And there are some who would preach that. I don't believe that's true. That you know, you're okay, if God gives you faith, you'll believe, and if God doesn't give you faith, you won't believe. I believe it's true that faith is the gift of God. But Jesus also said, Whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. And when we come to God wanting to believe that with he says then I'll take you, I'll give you that faith so let's come on to John Wesley who as I say had this serious problem and for years he preached and preached and preached and he admitted to his friend Peter Bowler he said look I'm preaching faith but I haven't got it I don't really have this faith that I'm preaching I know all the facts I've been to theological college, I've studied the Bible, I've got all the facts, but I haven't got that faith. One point he went off to America, Uh that, of course, this is uh, 18th century, and he went off to America to uh, work in the settlements there. This that was when uh, a lot of English people decided America was a better place to live, and so they got on their boats, and they went over there, and they got their settlements Uh, and he went over there to minister to them and to the Native Americans and he said in his journal they didn't go so much to convert them as that he hoped he himself would find the faith he wanted he didn't and he came back a miserable failure and we think of Wesley so often as the, the man who was so successful who did so much and he did but not then And it wasn't uh, until 1738, when he was 35 years old, that he describes in his book, in his diary, he says that evening, and he's talking about one particular day, he says, I reluctantly attended a meeting in Aldersgate. Someone read from Luther's preface to the Epistle to the Romans. Now, I don't know if you've ever read any of Luther's writings, but I can tell you Luther's preface... To the Epistle to the Romans is pretty dismal, dry stuff. Uh, but here was a meeting, and someone was standing up and reading from Luther's preface to Paul's letter to the Romans. And he says, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warm. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. And that evening, Wesley suddenly got the assurance that he'd been lacking for 35 years, all the years he'd been ministering. And his heart was strange he of all. God actually responded to him. His friend Peter Bowler had said to him, look John, you haven't got faith, don't worry about it, just preach faith. Go and preach faith, and preach faith, and preach faith, and you'll get it. And that's exactly what happened. And if you're struggling with just that whole sense of faith in Christ, of really believing, of knowing that He died for you, then just exercise the faith of saying to God, I can't I can't COVID, I can't accept this. And I believe that when we come to God, Jesus said, He overcomes, comes, I'll not drive away. If you find faith beyond you. Take that step of faith that just commits yourself to God to give you faith and he will do. If you're in that position then talk. Talk to those you know have faith and they will help you and God himself will give you the faith that you just feel I can't can't hold that at the moment. So there's one aspect of faith that comes from Thomas. second aspect of faith that I want to look at uh, comes from a man called Hezekiah. Now Hezekiah was a king in the Old Testament of the Bible. Uh, he was king of a country called uh, Judah. And we read there that in the 14th year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. So here's Hezekiah ruling this country and Sennacherib, the Assyrian he comes with all his forces and they were the great force of the day they came and attacked all the cities and Jerusalem alone is left he hasn't taken Jerusalem Hezekiah's is there in Jerusalem but all the other cities have been taken by the Assyrians uh, and uh, they had done that because Hezekiah wouldn't Submit to Assyrian uh, rule and Assyrian uh, dominance. So we read then that Hezekiah sent this message to the king of Assyria, I've done wrong, withdraw from me, and I will pay whatever you demand of me. Complete capitulation. And we read that the king of Assyria exacted from Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver, 30 talents of gold, Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the temple of the Lord and in the treasuries of the royal palace. At this time, Hezekiah stripped off the gold which he had covered the doors and doorposts of the temple of the Lord and gave it to the king of Assyria. What a tragedy. All the things that were given to God, he took them out. He sent them to the king to try to bring about peace. And worse was to follow. The king of Assyria wasn't actually satisfied with that. He wanted Jerusalem as well. And so uh, he threatened and he sent messages and he sent a letter to Hezekiah. uh, And it said, Do not let the God you depend on deceive you when he says Jerusalem will not be handed over to the king of Assyria. In other words, uh, Sennacherib and uh, message. he says, look, we're going to take Jerusalem. Your God can't stop it. Nothing you can do about it. We're going to take Jerusalem. We've taken all the other cities. Jerusalem's next in line. Poor Hezekiah. Must be a bit awful being a king, wasn't it? Uh, But he's got. what's he going to do? Well, he actually did the right thing. It says, um, "Sorry, uh, uh, yes, yeah, uh, He said he went up. Uh, sorry, he went up to the temple of the Lord, and he spread the letter out before the Lord. And there's this lovely picture of Hezekiah in all the trouble he's in. He doesn't know what to do. If any man had doubt it was Hezekiah. What do I do? what do I do about all this? So he goes up to the temple and he just spreads this letter out in the temple and he says, God, what do I do? I don't know. I suppose for many of us in our Christian lives there are times when we just don't know what God wants us to do. We don't know. What's the best thing to do in this situation? And I'm not going to try and list those because for all of us they're different. But I'm sure that you can think of times when you've just been at your wit's end. What do we do about this? We don't know. And he did the one thing that he could do. He spread this letter out before the Lord. So how did God respond to that? Well, God sent his prophet Isaiah. And Isaiah said to uh, Hezekiah, This is what the Lord says concerning the king of Assyria He will not enter this city or shoot an arrow here. He will not come before it with shield or build a siege ramp against it. By the way he came, he will return. He will not enter this city, declares the Lord. I will defend this city and save it for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. And the next verse says, that night the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. When the people got up next morning, there were all the dead bodies. I like that phrase, I remember reading it as a youngster. Uh, When they got up in the morning, they were all dead. Um, And you sort of had to think, well, quite, but it's not saying that quite, is it? When the Israelites, when Hezekiah and his people got up in the morning, this great Assyrian army outside the city, God answered. And there, why? Because Hezekiah did what he should have done. He went to God and said, I don't know what to do. And God sorted it out for him. Nothing like Ezekiah, but one instance I, I remember not. Uh, some years ago when I was teaching, and I'll tell you, it was quite a while ago, uh, I had a couple of girls uh, come in, uh, involved with at school, uh, and uh, you, you probably know what teenage girls are like. Uh, and I... Well, it, it got difficult, and I said things that I shouldn't have said. Uh, it, it just got out of hand. Uh, I didn't do anything uh, sort of hitting them or anything like that but I knew that I'd overstepped the mark and I went home and I, I thought I've got to come in tomorrow morning and I don't know what these guys are going to do, what they're going to say to anyone and I was, uh, I just didn't know what to do. And you can imagine that night it was on my mind, and I prayed, and I prayed a lot that night. And I went in next morning, thinking, "What am I going to do about this? How am I going to sort this out?" And I, I really, I really was bothered. Uh, I didn't think I'd done anything that would have been, uh, would have, I could have got sacked for. But I knew that I had overstepped the mark, and I could be in quite serious trouble. And I went into my room. I was always. Uh, at school very early. I went to my room and I, I, saw, I, I was actually sitting thinking, God, what do I do? What's my next step? And the door opened and these two girls came in. And one of them said, thought we'd better come and say sorry about yesterday, sir. We went too far. And I've, I've never forgotten that. Because, you know, it was, I didn't know what to do. Now, that may not ring a bell with you in your experience, but I'm sure that you, like me, have had those times when I just don't know what to do. The doubt is crippling. Bring it to God. There is no other answer but prayer. And then uh, they also tell you that prayer is the one bridge. Let's go on. The third aspect of doubt comes from another man from the Old Testament called Habakkuk. Uh, to the Americans who are here, that's what you call Habakkuk, but it's actually Habakkuk. Uh, and so uh, I want to just uh, turn us to, to to think about him. Habakkuk was a prophet, and Habakkuk had a problem. He had a big doubt. He lived at a time when there was so much evil around him, so much violence. And he says, that he starts his letter off right at the beginning, he says, How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong?" Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. The law is paralysed. Justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous, so that justice is perverted. And Habakkuk has all these doubts. Well, God, how can you let this happen? How can you. And the things he lists the violence. Do you ever look at the world? and see the violence and think, God, why? The strife and the conflict, why God? The paralysed law, justice, do you think we live in a just society? I thank God for that we live here in this country where there is a measure of justice. But you don't have to read your papers for long. You don't have to talk to people who've suffered injustice, who've suffered oppression. Why God? God, why? And to me, that's one of the, the big areas of doubt that so many people have. God, why? Does God care? Well, God's immediate answer to Habakkuk doesn't actually help him a lot. Because God says to him, now look at the nations and watch, be utterly amazed, for I am going to do something in your days that you wouldn't believe, even if you were told. And so a good thinking, ah, here comes the answer. And God says, I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places not their own. I'm going to raise up the Babylonians, these are evil people." And he goes on to say, I'm going to raise, and they're going to come into Judah, and they're going to just destroy Judah, they're going to just destroy Jerusalem. And that, of course, throws Habakkuk even more. Well, okay, it's in the world, but God, you're going to use Babylonians, these dreadful people, and they were. They were violent, they, 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 they were, uh, the stories are, are legendary, and if you go into Revelation, you'll find Babylon is used as a picture of all that he's evil. And God says, I'm going to use Babylon for my ends. Paul Habakkuk, he's even more confused. How can God do that? But then God goes on and says to him, the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come. And will not delay. God is a God of eternity. God is not bounded by time. He has reasons for what he does, and everything he does is right and good and just. And he's working out his purposes. But God works in terms of eternity. And what we can see now in our little part patch of time we can't judge God in his actions on that. Time will show his righteousness and justice. Peter has a similar thought when he he writes, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, his promise that Jesus will return, as some understand so this, he's patient with you not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And people in Peter's day were saying, well, where is this Jesus supposed to be coming again to sort all this mess out? Where is he? He hasn't come. We still live in this this miserable world. And Peter says he's not slow. God knows what he's doing. He's got reasons for not coming now. And the reason he gives is his compassion and love. His willingness to to allow other people uh, to come to know him. The fact is that God knows what he's doing. We may not understand it, but God knows what he's doing. Habakkuk then reminds himself of what he knows of God from the past. He says, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. So he thinks back. And he reminds himself of all that God has done for him, of God's greatness. And in the end he says, well, this is God. This is God we're talking about. Look, Look at all the evidence of how great he is. He is God. So who am I to question him? And Habakkuk's prophecy ends on a real high. He finishes by saying, though the fig tree does not bud, There are no grapes on the vines. Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food. Though there are no sheep in the pens, no cattle in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Saviour. And Habakkuk comes to the point where all his doubts, they've gone. He just... uh, sets God as God. God has done this. Don't know why. Don't understand it. But whatever happens, I just trust in God. Early on in Habakkuk's conversation with God, God has said to him, the righteous will live by his faith. And God says to you, as a Christian, you're to live by your faith, not by your understanding. And too often we want to live as Christians by our understanding. We can't understand it. It's right that we ask questions. It's right that we seek to know how God, why God does things. But we don't live by our understanding. We can't abolish times of questioning and guilt from our life they're going to be there but the closer we come to God the more our doubts will recede some people you trust why do you trust them? because you've got to know them you know them and as we come closer to God and we know him more and more and it should be true that when you uh, the older we get and the more we move with God. And when you get to my sort of age, you shouldn't have any doubts at all. Because we've seen God. We know him. We know that there's nothing that he's going to do, that is in any way wrong. The final verse that I was given uh, in 1954 when I was baptised on a a, a snowy December evening and I was baptised in a a church in St Albans and they gave me this verse Trust in the Lord with all your heart Lean not on your own understanding In all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight We all live with doubts. We all have times when we just don't understand, we don't know. We doubt this, we doubt that. My message, message this morning is quite simply, trust. The answer to doubt is not knowledge, not understanding. The answer to it is faith. Trust in the Lord. Don't lean on your own understanding, and everything will be sorted out. I suggest a few moments of quiet, as we just bring to God the doubts, the questions, but as we affirm affirm before him that he is God, that we actually trust him. We know what he's doing is right